You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So, Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 to 21. This is our final session. We have just eight verses left to study. However, we're not going to jump straight into those verses. If you've read them, you'll notice they are closing exhortations. What I want to do, because it's been so long since we first started this study, we are going to go back all the way to chapter 1, and we are going to attempt to do like a flyover, like a brief summary of every chapter, leading us back up to the final eight verses that we have. Therefore, we have the whole book in our mind, in context, as we finish this wonderful book of Scripture. I would say let's turn. I will read bits of Scripture as we summarise and go through. We're going to go at quite a pace, I'll be frank with you, to get through this. So let's turn back to chapter 1, please. And if you remember, the book of Revelation begins with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember the word there, apocalypse. This means the unveiling. It tells us the main theme and character of this book, not a treatise on end times prophecy, but a revelation and unveiling of the character of Jesus Christ. It is a book that reveals him like no other book, a book that supremely reveals the glory and majesty of this soon coming king like no other. Hopefully now, having gone through this book, you understand a little bit why it's called this now as we have studied it. We see in this ver- these introductory verses, God gave this prophecy to the Apostle John for him to give to the churches. This book is for the churches. We, when we did this year, a year and a half ago, we made the point that it is a shame that this book is so neglected in the Christian church when it was specifically signified to be for the church. That's the reason it was given. And also we see that we are promised a blessing if we read, hear and obey the words that are contained in it. And then the rest of chapter one, we are given that amazing vision of the glorified Lord Jesus. This is in contrast to the Jesus that we read of in the Gospels in the sense that he is no longer walking the shores of the Galilee or the streets of Jerusalem. This is the king risen, glorified in all of his majesty and kingly splendor, all of that now shining through. Remember, it says he sees Jesus, Jesus clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, where it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. He's wearing these golden priestly garments. The blazing glory of the Lord is coming from him, emphasizing really that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, that warrior, priest, king, Messiah that was promised all those years ago. He also comes with the authority to judge, the feet of burnished bronze, the eyes that see all. He has a sword coming from his mouth, the sword, remember, being the word of God. It is the word of God that judges. His face is shining like the sun, the glory emanating from him. He is seen standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches that we're about to read the epistles to. John was so overwhelmed by this majestic scene that he falls to his feet as if dead. And then Jesus comes, and even in this glorified picture, he, com- he comforts John. He comes to him and says, 
Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is really an amazing introduction to this book, this clear picture of the glorified Lord, really, that is not captured for us anywhere else in Scripture. But then from this, we move into chapters 2 and 3, which is those famous letters to the seven churches of Asia. These are seven epistles written to the church by the Lord Jesus, much-neglected epistles. In these, he reminds the church of certain things. He warns them of things. He rebukes them for things. He comforts them and he commends them for different things. And he gives them a reminder of the promises that they have in the gospel. To the church at Ephesus, he commends them for their deeds, for their doctrinal orthodoxy, that they tried those who said they were apostles and they weren't. But he also rebukes them for leaving their first love. He reminds them that doesn't matter how right you are in a survey of doctrine, if you don't have the love of Jesus Christ in your life, it's all for nothing. He tells them to remember that and to repent, or else their lampstand, their witness will be removed. And to the overcomer in that church, he promises, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And hopefully you'll understand that, having just studied all of that now in the end, chapter 21. To the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, he tells them that he knows their poverty and what they're going through, what they're suffering, but he still says to them they are in fact rich. He has nothing bad to say of this church, only comfort. To the overcomer, he promises, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To the church at Pergamum, he commends them for holding fast his name in the midst of this culture that is deeply rooted in false religion, where Satan's throne dwells, it said in the text. He warns them about their immorality, about making idols, about making other saints stumble and be involved in this stuff. He tells them to repent. To the overcomer in that church, he says to him, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. To the church at Thyatira, he commends them for their love, faith and service but he rebukes them for their toleration of the woman Jezebel, which was used symbolically to speak of Jezebel, the false prophetess, her apostate beliefs and her persecution of the saints. He exhorts them to hold fast until he comes. And to the overcomer, he promises to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. To the church at Sardis, he writes, Wake up, be alert, strengthen that which remains, what you have received, or else I will come upon you unexpectedly. This is the sleeping church, and he tells them to wake. To the overcomer, he says, He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, he commends them for keeping his word. He commends them for being faithful and he promises them an open door for missions. He will keep them also, he says, from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the world. And to the overcomer, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He knocks the church of to the church of Laodicea, often called the apostate church or the lukewarm church. He rebukes them for being neither hot nor cold. He says this is the worst state of affairs, so much so that he will spit you out of his mouth in this state. 
He tells them that they are relying on their riches and their worldly power, but in fact, they are miserable, wretched, and blind in this state. He knocks at that door, asking to be allowed in, clearly on the outside of that particular church. But to those in that church who do overcome, who are faithful, he says, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with me on my father's throne. These are the letters to the seven churches. Then after the events on earth, really these churches, we are suddenly transported into the throne room of God in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, if you remember that. And John sees the central piece of heaven. You remember what it was. The centrepiece of everything that we see behind the veil, so to speak, was the throne of God. The majesty and king sits on the throne. It's described in those wonderful terms of being like a rainbow with precious stones and all these jewels emanating from it. Very hard to describe in many ways. Around the throne were those 24 smaller thrones where the 24 elders sat in white robes with crowns on their heads. It's described there's lightning flashes, there's thunder, there's lamps of fire. And in between, well, right next to the throne, you saw these amazing living creatures, the four living creatures, these very unusual angelic beings who attend the throne of God. And they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And at this angelic proclamation, it records for us that the elders fall down onto their face, and they begin worshipping the Lord. They add their own chorus of praise to this angelic praise going on, singing and lifting up the name of the Lord God Almighty. It is an overwhelmingly majestic scene, an awe-inspiring scene, and probably in many ways incomprehensible to us. But then the vision moves on. John focuses on the seven-sealed scroll that is in the hand of him who sits on the throne. And at this moment, the angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll? And you remember how it goes. There's weeping. John is weeping. People are weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll. If you remember, we talked a lot. We did a whole session on that scroll. It was the title deed to the earth. The title deed. This is based on the land laws of the Old Testament where they would have title deeds and a sold property could be redeemed back by someone who is a relative of the original owner. And this is actually very crucial, as we said, to our redemption. You remember... The title deed to the earth was given to Adam by the Lord. We fell into sin. Adam sinned. He gave the title deed to Satan, who has been the prince of, this, the, prince of the power of the air ever since. The whole point is that you need someone who can represent both God and man to be a redeemer who can claim back the title deed to the earth. Enter Jesus Christ. This is why in the vision, John, he's weeping. An elder steps forward and says those famous words, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And then he sees between the throne, in the midst of the elders, a living creature. In the midst of the living creatures, he says, the lamb standing as if slain. So in those two verses, we see the dual nature of Christ in many ways, the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers, but also the lamb standing as if slain, because that's how he has the right to do it. The cross is still central in this book. And then he says, he came, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he came, took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. And at this moment, again, it's such a monumental moment in this book, a climax, 
it suddenly breaks out in praise in heaven again. We see the elders singing the song of the redeemed. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Just those, all those descriptive words there just building upon each other at this moment when the one who is worthy takes this scroll. Something is about to happen. And we move now into chapter 6 and onwards in this book. John begins to see the Lamb break the seals on this scroll. This is the final drama beginning. This is the day of the Lord commencing the judgments that will come by which the Lord will redeem back his earth, basically. This is the final period of tribulation, as we call it, beginning. Darkest before the dawn, the kingdom will come through this period of final tribulation. So Jesus breaks these first six seals. And if you remember, they unleash these different judgments upon the earth. The first are what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, those famous horsemen. The white horse in the first seal, we identified this as the coming conqueror. But this was not Jesus Christ. This was not the king who comes at the end of the book. This was the counterfeit. This is a judgment. This was the Antichrist, the one who comes imitating Jesus Christ, trying to usurp his place, trying to basically be the king of this world. Following him is the red horse. This was war. Peace is taken from the earth. The black horse after that, this was famine. We talked about how war and famine are often go together. And then the pale horse, the ashen horse, this was described as being death in Hades, given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with famine and pestilence. The fifth seal, John suddenly sees all those martyrs in heaven under the throne who have been killed, persecuted believers who follow Jesus Christ and are killed for it. They're crying out for justice. When, O oh Lord, will you, just, will you avenge us? And he says, you must wait a little while longer. And then we see the sixth seal opened. This brings about cosmic disturbances, terror on the earth as these things unfold, and the realisation that the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is here. It suddenly breaks in the narrative then to chapter 7, and we see God seal the 144,000 Jewish servants for that special work that they will be doing during this time, the witnesses of the Lord. And then, that, then the seventh seal is broken, and it simply says silence breaks out in heaven. The seven angels standing before God arise with their seven trumpets and they prepare themselves to sound. So these are the next series of judgments. The first trumpet, hail and fire rains down. A third of the earth and trees are destroyed. The second, a burning mountain is thrown into the sea. A third of the sea creatures are destroyed. The third trumpet, a star fell from heaven called Wormwood, polluted the springs and the rivers. Many die. Fourth, a third of the sun and stars were struck. Darkness sweeps the earth. And then again, an angel is seen flying in mid-heaven. He says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth for the remaining three trumpets still are to come. This is the final end time judgment now in full swing. The fifth trumpet, the bottomless pit is opened and all those creatures are released from it and unleashed upon the earth. The sixth trumpet, the four angels bound in the Euphrates are released and that 200 million strong army is unleashed upon mankind. It simply says the first woe is past. In chapter 11, again, we're given a, another interlude. We glimpse the ministry of those people called the two witnesses who are ministering in Jerusalem at the temple at this time and they are testifying that God's word is true and against the ministry of the Antichrist at this time. The narrative tells us that the Antichrist is given power to kill these two witnesses at this time and we see that the world breaks out in praise at this moment. 
tells you where the state of the world is and why we are going through what we're going through at this time. They celebrate as these prophets of God are killed. They send gifts to one another. But then, miraculously, three days, God raises them from the dead and takes them to heaven, and the enemies of the world move from celebrating to trembling. A great earthquake hits the city, and there is much destruction. The second woe is past. The third is coming. The seventh trumpet is opened, and now we are given a glimpse of Christ's soon coming reign foreseen. It simply says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And in chapter 12, we looked at what we called the unseen war. John is again shown this vision of a woman in heaven with a crown of 12 stars. We identified that as the woman is Israel, about to give birth, it says, to a male child, which is the Messiah. We know that the Messiah came through Israel, and it tells us that there is a red dragon sating, waiting to devour that child. This is the unseen war. This is the reason behind much anti-Semitism and attempts to wipe out the Jews in the history of this world, much persecution against those people. It's the unseen spiritual battle going on behind all things. Chapter 13, we're given a glimpse again now into the rise of this person called the Antichrist, this unholy trinity with the false prophet. He's called the beast from the sea. We learn that he will have control of the government at this time. He will be a powerful, wonderful, charismatic speaker. And it says that the world will wonder after him. They'll be amazed at him and even that they will end up worshipping him. And it also tells us that by doing that, they are in fact worshipping the dragon because he is the one who gave authority to the beast. He will speak arrogant words. He will blaspheme against God. He will wage war upon the saints and those who name the name of Christ rather than his name. His number two at this time is called the false prophet. And he is a false Holy Spirit character, basically. His whole point on this earth at this time is to direct mankind's worship towards the beast, just as the Holy Spirit is supposed to direct us to worship Jesus Christ. It's this whole counterfeit going on here. He is given power to perform signs and wonders. He will deceive the world at this time to the point that he has the world build a statue and an image of this beast to the point that the world must bow down and worship the image. And we looked at many historical and current examples where that sort of thing is actually going on in the world today. Anyone who refuses to do that at this time is killed, and all who do it are the ones who will end up taking what we have called the mark of the beast. And we talked a lot about what that was. It is a final symbol and identification that you are a worshipper of him at this time, and therefore you will come under the judgment soon coming. At this point, John sees an angel flying in mid-heaven, giving a final proclamation of the gospel, a warning that Babylon is about to fall. As the earth is in its final rebellion at this time, suddenly it cuts to heaven again, and we see that heaven is once again rejoicing. We see them singing the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So close to this being fulfilled now at this time. The final judgment is beginning. Now we see the seven bowls of wrath commence in the next section of Revelation. The first bowl, sores are put on people who have taken the mark of the beast on this earth. The second bowl, everything in the sea at this point dies. Third 
all natural water sources are destroyed. The fourth bowl, the sun's intensity is increased and men are scorched under it. And it says still they would not repent. Fifth, the throne darkness is poured out on the throne of the beast. His kingdom is darkened and all those who follow him are in pain. And it says still they would not repent of their deeds. Sixth, the Euphrates River is dried up, preparing the way for the battle of Armageddon. This period of earth's rebellion is coming to a close. The kings of the earth and those that follow the beast, it says, are gathered for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. This is really evil's final stand on this earth. It says in verse 16, And they are gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. They, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. We talked about that a lot, remember. This was the final proclamation. These bowls contain the final period of portion of God's wrath on this earth. And after that is done, his wrath will be spent and we won't see his wrath again. And then verses chapter 17 and 18, it talks about Babylon the Great being destroyed. There's lots that goes on here. Remember, Babylon was the city. It says it's the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth at this time. We went through this in detail. The centre of world government in the last days, the headquarters of this character called the Beast, described as being full of blasphemy, clothed with gold and precious stones. It's the commercial and economic centre of the world, the headquarters of global trade at this time, and the centre, most likely, of Antichrist's false religion at this time. It says in verse 3 of 17, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And it tells us now that it is her time to fall. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Babylon is destroyed. And with that, all that's left really at this time now is Jerusalem. And the eyes and the focus of the world turn back to that city, that fateful city where everything really has happened. The most important things in history have happened. Its eyes are back on Jerusalem at this time. And we move into chapter 19. We are on the verge of the close of this age of history. And we are again given a glimpse into heaven at this time. And this time again, we see heaven praising that fourfold hallelujah chorus rings out. It says the great multitude in heaven are singing hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And at this time on earth, the Antichrist is making his final attempt to destroy the Jewish people, gathering his forces towards Jerusalem. And at this time, the father says to the son, now is the time, go. And that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember the Psalm 2 where he tells him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. This is the time, basically. He's not, no longer sitting. The father says to the son, go, take back the earth for my kingdom, for your purposes. And now the son returns. It is time for the king to return. And in verse 19, 11, it says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war this is really the climax of the ages the glorious return of the king to redeem the earth for his glory and to set up his kingdom it says from his mouth comes a sharp sword 
so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The beast, the false prophet, the kings of the earth, anyone who's assembling to try and make war against this rightful king, they are identified as usurpers at this time and their time is up. They are being evicted. The king of all kings defeats them merely with the word of his mouth. This is that same sword that we saw in that first chapter. The glorified Lord had the sword coming from his mouth. That is all he needs to defeat them and they are thrown into the lake of fire. And then it says we see Satan himself now is taken prisoner, he is bound for a thousand years, and during that thousand years, the kingdom now begins. The marriage supper of the Lamb happens, the kingdom begins. Christ rules from Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years. It is a time of peace and prosperity like no other on this world. It says it is a time when the nations will no longer learn war. They won't know about these things. It is a time when all of God's covenantal promises promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to King David all those years ago, find their ultimate fulfilment in this time. It is the time that God's people have longed for. Seek ye first the kingdom. This is the heart of the believer. We long for this day and for this age. And then the text jumps very quickly to after this thousand year kingdom. It says that Satan is released. Once again, proving his true character, he immediately rebels and starts about deceiving the world again. However, the Lord does not allow it. He is then, at this time, thrown into the lake of fire and he will never be seen again. And then it is time for the final great white throne judgment of all the unbelieving dead. And this is, again, a very unusual scene. It describes how the current heavens and earth are fled away and everyone is left just standing before the throne of God. The books are open and sentences are given out. And then it identifies the fact that death itself is then thrown into the lake of fire. It says this is the second death. And with that death, the last enemy, as it's described in scripture, is fully defeated and gone. It no longer has a place in God's creation. It is time for the new order to begin. And this is what chapter 21, which we studied just a couple of weeks ago, was all about. The new heaven and the new earth are seen coming down with the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. This whole city, remember, was a place where God and man can finally dwell together without the presence of sin and all of the death and corruption that that brought. Verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. The city, if you remember, was designed to radiate the beauty and the glory of God across all of it. It's again a description that we really can't comprehend, but it is given as the fulfilment really of God's creative purpose with us, a place where we dwell with him with unhindered fellowship and unity. And at the centre of this city, this new Jerusalem that's presented here as, a, as like a, a wife, the bride, we see at the centre of it again the throne room of God, the tree of life, the water of life, flowing from it it says very clearly that everyone has full access to the tree of life and it says that in the new jerusalem here his servants will serve the great god almighty it even says that we will see his face at this time 
which has always been the longing of the saints and has always been unable to really be properly fulfilled in this age where sin has hindered that. But here, finally, we have that time, like it was in Eden, where God and man walk and dwell together. And then finally, in the end, chapter 22, we looked at this last week, John is given some final words of warning. We won't just recap what we did, but let's now pick it up in verse 14 and we'll finish this book with that whole context in mind. So chapter 22, verse 14. He says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So this is a reminder. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The robes, as we've seen in Revelation, are talking about the garments of salvation. Robes that are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb are the ones who have access to the tree of life. Now, just some of you may be confused at this point. Some of your Bibles may not read. Wash their robes there. It might say those who do his commandments. This is a common, this is a textual variant as we call it in the text. If, if I had a picture of the Greek text to you here, you'd notice the two expressions are almost identical. One of them is the correct rendering that we have in the text. The, the manuscript witnesses are fairly evenly produced. The, the, the King James, the, those Bibles that are based on the Textus Receptus read uh, those who do his commandments. Some of the older manuscripts read wash their robes and there's quite a few that cross over in between. It's one of those times where it, it's hard to actually know. It doesn't actually cause me any problem because I think the same principle is being expressed here through both of these statements. And it's because the Greek is so similar that there's this bit of confusion here. Those who have washed their robes in Revelation is a theme that you find. We've talked about the robes. It's talking about only those who are saved have access to the tree of life. But also in Revelation, you'll find the expression, those who do his commandments. It's not talking about being saved by doing his commandments. It's talking that those who are saved are the ones who do his commandments. Just like the teaching of the New Testament says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So it's the same principle that's being expressed just in a different way, so don't let that trip you up there. It's basically saying you've got to be saved if you want to have access to the tree of life. And verse 15, people get offended by this verse. I've explained this, I think, previously in different times. Dogs is not used in the same insulting way that it is necessarily about appearance and things like that. In our culture, that's how that term is used. It's a rude term. In the ancient Near East, dogs were scavengers. They were considered an absolute pain they were wild they were dangerous they carried disease and the point of them was they would be seen to eat anything anything that was on the city any garbage extra i mean they would eat anything wild dogs and the idea was in the ancient near east not just amongst the israelites amongst all cultures they would then use that as someone who was immoral it came to be a symbolic representation of someone who was immoral and someone who had by the jewish people they used it to say they had a very they false religion, basically, as in they would consume anything, any religious the stuff they would consume, and it just became a phrase to represent that, so it's, it would have been well understood in this culture. The dogs, the sorcerers, it then goes on to list some of these things, sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, adulterers, and liars. And this is, remember, this is the end of the book of Revelation, and it says that these people are excluded from all of the blessings we've just read about in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Now, I find it interesting, if you look at that list... Immoral persons, murders, idolaters and liars. I hate to say it, but all of us would be in one of those categories. As much as we might, I haven't murdered anyone. Remember Jesus says if you've been angered, if you've angered, had anger in your heart, you're a murderer. 
All of us have probably had immoral thoughts. All of us have lied at some point. All of us would be in these categories and thus we would be excluded from the blessings of God. And it's supposed to, he puts this here to drive home the point again that unless you've washed your robes in the blood of Jesus Christ, unless you are saved, unless you've appealed to him as your saviour, you will be excluded. That is what you have earned through your sins. And again, it's pointing people at this final stage in this final book back to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So here we see the whole message of this book was sent by the authority of Jesus Christ. It is his apocalypse, his unveiling, his book, his word. And he gave it to the churches. And he also identifies himself as the root and the descendant of David. And this is, again, the root of David. It's another term. You could say the root of Jesse. In fact, it's a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy coming back from Isaiah chapter 11, where it talks about the root of Jesse. It's identifying himself once again. I am the Messiah, the bright and morning star, the star that shines before the day dawns. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. This is a final altar call, so to speak, that we find in this final book of the Bible. The offer of God's salvation is available to all who would come, all who are thirsty, all who seek God. Basically, he's saying don't refuse to accept this invitation. It is an invitation that Christ extends to everyone and the consequences of refusing it are dire. Back to verse 15, you're excluded from all the blessings that he has brought for us. Those who are his at this time, our hearts should cry out and affirm, come Lord Jesus. That phrase we see throughout the Bible, Maranatha, that's what it means, come Lord Jesus. It was a common greeting expressed in, by the early church to show how much this was on their minds. They would greet each other with that expression, come Lord Jesus. That's a lesson maybe we could think and get back to today in our age verse 18 i testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues which are written in this book if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy god will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book again people get confused by these verses because they think it's maybe teaching a work salvation it's not the point Basically, what these verses are saying is do not alter the word of God. Now, what that means, though, is not necessarily like we may think of like getting a Bible and trying to edit the text and write our own like the Jehovah's Witnesses do and things like that. I'm sure that applies to it, but this is actually more speaking here to the churches. And we alter the text in different ways. The way that we alter the text is when we don't accept the authority of the word of God. And if you've ever spoken or seen a religious group, Christian denominations, hundreds of them, people personally who don't accept the authority of the word of God in all areas, not just the bits that we like, what they do is they feel the liberty to deny its message in certain parts. If you don't accept the authority of the word of God, you don't have any problem denying certain parts of the word of God. And that is how we alter it in many effects. And when people do that, it is actually a demonstration that they do not know the one who gave it, or they have not understood the one who gave it. This is the whole point. This is why, just a verse before, he told them, 
I, Jesus Christ, am the one who sent this word. I am the Messiah, I am the root and offspring of David. It is my word, my authority, and you are not at liberty to doubt it or to change it. That's the point. And I find this really to be a fascinating insight that the Lord has of the things he would know going on. These are the final words, almost, of the New Testament canon of the Bible completely, and they are a warning not to doubt the authority of the word of God. And by logic, you can apply that not just to the book of Revelation, easily throughout, back throughout the whole Bible, really. And I find it no small point that we have these words at the end of the Bible, because it tells us the unseen war, the age-old battle, the culture wars that we see today, the theological disputes that we have in our churches today, they all come back, ultimately, to this issue. Has God really said? Is it God's word or man's word? Where do you place the authority? And this is it. Every issue comes back to this at some point. You think of those issues that the churches are debating viciously today. They all come back to the word of God. If you don't understand the authority of the word of God, you feel you have the liberty to deny certain parts of it. And this is where all the trouble starts. And then verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It is a final reminder that he is coming quickly. The final point he wants to remind people of is this, make sure you are ready for that event. Basically, don't wait until tomorrow to get saved. Don't wait until you think things are sorted out in your life. Don't wait until you've had all your fun in your younger years. Don't delay. His message to the church, the final words that Jesus felt fit to tell us was that he is coming quickly the quickly means be ready that's the point of that expression there he says come to jesus for salvation now whilst you still have the chance and the cry of the church at that call is simply maranatha come lord jesus and when we say maranatha we are expressing our desire to dwell with god in that intimate relationship that we see him working towards throughout the whole scriptures. And then the final verse, verse 21, John adds on the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And it is really the grace of the Lord Jesus. This is his wish for the whole church. This is the grace of the Lord is what has accomplished everything for us, everything that we see going on in Revelation, all those blessings at the end. It's by grace we are saved through faith. He says amen and we add our amen onto that and with that the Bible is in fact completed. They were the final words of the New Testament canon, that is it. And for me really the final words that stick out are be ready. Yes I am coming quickly. The return of Jesus is assured and he wants us to be ready for that event and most importantly he wants us to live in light of that event taking it seriously, understanding its authority and being obedient to the word of God, living it out in our lives and displaying with our lives that we are citizens of a different kingdom, that we have a different hope, a different home that we are on our way to. And that is a witness to the world and how we display our faith to the world at this time. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. And then thank you all for coming through the book of Revelation with me. But dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. And with these closing exhortations of this final book of scripture, Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts, Lord, 
that we would be excited when we think of your soon return, Lord, that we would be excited when we think one day we will get to dwell with you and know you in those sorts of ways. But until then, Lord, we know we're not left. We have your spirit, Lord, that guides us, leads us, sanctifies us, and is at this moment, Lord, transforming us into conformity to your image. We pray, Lord, for that work. And we pray as a church that you would use us, Father, to be a light and a witness in this culture and in this world at this time. Pray, Lord, that we would encourage one another, that we would just stir each other up for a more holy faith in this regard. And we ask that this would be done by the power of your Spirit. And we pray, Father, that Jesus would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.